This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. So I'm going to give a talk today that actually doesn't really delve into my work uh, as it stands per se, but just some thoughts that I have and kind of where genetics and neuroscience has taken us to try to understand a little bit more about human diversity and autism. And this was a talk, at least the seeds of this talk, were actually first given at UCSD in a Carter Symposium in 2015 or 16. And then subsequently at the Allen Frontiers meeting, I gave the plenary lecture using this and I I expanded a little bit. So, so hopefully you'll stay with me and I'll be able to get through it quickly. So the theme of my talk is that human disorders of cognition and behavior like autism, like other psychiatric disorders, are part of a continuum of what I would call normal human variation, um, states of the brain in a way. Variation in brain structure and function, though, is under strong genetic influence. And we know that autism itself is under strong genetic influence. The last point, though, is that understanding individual variability will greatly inform understanding of human brain function and allow us to approach disease kind of more rationally. And maybe, you know, as I am a physician and I call these disorders or diseases, understand that there is a kind of, you know, um, that's not said in a pejorative way. I have high blood sugar um, and I have diabetes. That's a disease. It doesn't really say much about me. Um, um, and I'm, yeah, I'm trying to move away from kind of some of the identity discussions that we have around this uh, to just basically um, get to the, you know, the kind of heart of the matter, which is that everything is, everything is part of a continuum. And as physicians and, and doctors, and and care caregivers, we make lines, you know, and and we make arbitrary lines of what's kind of the normal or neurotypical and what isn't, and it usually has to do with practical things like functioning in the world. And so, you know, hopefully this will be of interest. So, major neuropsychiatric disorders are highly heritable. We can see from anxiety, which is very common, and, and major depression, all the way down to schizophrenia and autism, which is a little more than one percent. We can also measure heritability in twins and families and autism and things like schizophrenia have very high heritability. There's a wide confidence bound here in autism because the twin studies are relatively small. You need thousands of twins to actually really um, have, have low confidence. Um, the SNP and genetic-based heritability is also quite high. Another interesting thing is that most of these psychiatric disorders are highly heritable, but they're also, um, they they have substantial shared genetic risk. So what I'm showing here is the genetic correlation, the actual genetic correlation between bipolar schizophrenia, major depression schizophrenia, and right here, autism and schizophrenia, which is even point two. And just making the point that there's a lot of shared quote unquote genetic risk or genetic risk factors that that um, you know that really have to do with individual and, and population variability. And I'm gonna get into this in gory detail. Um, but, you know, we don't want to take genetics too far. It's just genetics is measurable. Um, it is a, a tool for understanding causal factors um, in, in how we have individual differences. And so this cartoon hopefully illustrates some of my 
you know, the sanguine issue here because this cartoon reads, um, a guy is lost. Um, and, you know, he's yelling at his wife in the car <laughs> because my genetic programming prevents me from stopping ass directions. That's why. Of course, we know very well that uh, behavior has both genetic and environmental components. Um, in autism, it's quite interesting. The heritability is close to 80%. So, so there's a, you know, we, we have a lot of evidence for really strong genetic risk. And how is that acting? It, the genes are acting during brain development, um, interacting. Of course, everything is genes in the environment, but uh, the genetic factors um, interact during development to create a cerebral structure. It's not a static structure. It's a dynamic structure, gross anatomy, you know, and so when I say structure, I, I mean all the way down to molecules. And then cognitive function, and cognitive function itself feeds back on cerebral structure. So, that, you know, and as one develops, there's a kind of uh, developmental cascade that occurs. So, again, genes act with the environment, autism. So, but we can measure, you know, the environment is, is it's very big, um, and it's hard to measure. The genetics is much easier to measure. It's very finite. And so, from a research standpoint, it, it, it's a very powerful set of tools. And so when we start conceptualizing something like autism or like social cognition, I need to make a few points about genetics, um, about, about ability. Um, and so I'm going to start with talking about ability. So, you know, we talk about individual differences. I mean, we know that autism involves uh, changes and differences in social cognition and repetitive behavior, and I actually still really consider language fundamental as well, but but that's uh, up for debate and, and not in DSM-5. So, you know, there's been this concept of G or general intelligence. G is related to many psychoeducational tests like IQ tests, especially those that task working memory and frontal lobe function. But it doesn't predict many functions, including certain spatial or constructional abilities, artistic or music abilities which one could say are in some ways even more fundamental to kind of humans than, than almost anything. The real critical thing is it doesn't really tell you much about anything in an individual, except for your, if you're at the way, way far extremes. So what I want to say is ability is pretty specific. Here's an example of an incredible charcoal um, drawing um, from Jonathan Lerman, who's a Who's, who's, whose mother sent this to me. He has a book that's uh, fantastic where the foreword is written by a former New York Times art critic. He's really a spectacular artist, um, almost, almost like Brock or, or, you know, or really uh, extraordinary talent. And, um, and, you know, and yet he's moderately to severely autistic in many ways. So, incredible drawing and then you know and here here is that um here is that book and i urge you to look at it the drawings are, are spectacular it's it's amazing art this is me um that's my best drawing of a human um and i'm not joking i have terrible artistic abilities i think i stopped at age five when it came to stick figures um some of it may be due to my attentional problems but whatever it is, I'm just making the point that I'm sitting here in front of you, I've done research, I have an MD and a PhD, 
I have certain talents, but I have certain areas of extreme weakness. And um, I know that, you know, take this tongue in cheek, but this really points out, um, you know, in a very, very personal and individual way, how if the world were not centered around language, but centered around drawing and art, um, I would be in big trouble. And this is just work from Bender, who's one of the, you know, um, um, giants in, in, in kind of uh, psychology, showing, you know, from my, you know, the waste three subtests. So what this is showing is that intellectual abilities show a wide degree of individual variability. So this is showing that if, if you take 11 subtests, like there are different ways to take this test, whether it's 11 or 14 subtests, it's a different, slightly different version of the WASTE 3. But that if you look at the 14 subtests, that is frequency of those who scale, who score at least one, one of those subtests, two or three standard deviations below the mean, which is substantial, substantially below average, and kind of you could say in the impaired range. So up to a quarter are more than three standard deviations, like in the bottom one to two percentile on at least one test. Again, our abilities aren't universal. Each of us has strengths and weaknesses. And of course, this has a high degree of heritability. Here are two twins. Um, it's one of the cutest pictures I've ever seen. Um, when you look at twins, you can see their outward appearances, language, and things they like. And, you know, we know that their cognition and things are, uh, um, you know, and behavior is highly similar. But actually, if you look at the MRI of two twins, they're virtually identical as well, just like other, other shapes and structures in them. So this just makes the point that brain development and cognition are are very highly heritable. So a lot of our individual differences are then due to, you know, you know, related to the differences in these heritability. So heritability of major brain structures such as cerebral hemispheres are very high. Um, heritability of cognition behavior are lower, but still very, very significant. Again, so saying we have a lot of individual variability, a lot of that, not all of it, can be related and measured related to um, uh, genetic factors. I'm just going to show you some data. This is old, uh, 10 years old now. This is like a heat map of brain. And it basically on top here, it's showing these individual functional networks, like parts of the brain act not individually. The brain is a series of networks that is, that is processing information and, and conducting behavior. And what you can see here is it, are these different networks mapped out on the lateral and medial uh, views of the brain. And then below it, we see the intersubject variability in kind of a heat map, those areas that are very, very bright, the hotter, the more yellow, red, or orange, the more variable. And uh, the blue regions, interesting, are sensory motor regions, um, visual cortex, primary, primary sensory regions. And it's the what we call the higher cortical association regions that have the most variability. And that's seen below here. If you look at this frontal parietal network or, you know, other, other networks that are long range connectivity, 
connecting frontal lobe, temporal, frontal, parietal, et cetera. Those are the most variable. And again, it's more so in higher order association regions. Interestingly, right, these are the regions and that have expanded most um, in, in primates and um, to some degree in humans. The other thing is that this structural variability is also associated with cognitive variability. In other words, the brain is an organ that underlies our function and uh, the variability in the regions that subserve those functions actually relates to your variability in those regions. So they map the core regions associated with IQ, anxiety, personality traits, executive function, emotional memory. And again, you find the, the high variable regions and you can see that variability in the multimodal regions, that is these higher association regions that, that are yellow and, and orange, are associated with cognitive and behavioral variability. So these regions are highly variable, and they're associated with high, high variability in the subsequent cognitive and behavioral features that they serve. So then the question is, okay, so there's... Our higher order association areas underlie our individual, you know, are, are related to a lot of individual variability. Uh, they're highly variable. Um, they are the are the parts of the brain that are related to human cognitive specializations, and that they're, you know, we don't see these these regions have expanded massively in primates and in humans. But but what are the forms of genetic variation that underlie this? And so how do we think about genetics? So I'll just give you a little bit of primer on the genetics. Humans have grown quickly from very small ancestral populations, and that's shown here from my major source of information, Wikipedia. One can see 2000 BC, there were, you know, not a lot of people, and then there's been this huge population growth in the last 2000 years. Actually, in the last few hundred years, this enormous inflection across all parts of the world. And that means we all come from common ancestors uh, from several thousand years ago. Most genetic variation... Um, that we see in people, you know, is relatively common, arose more than 10,000 years ago. Such common variation has been acted upon by natural selection to remove strong bad actors. What that means is that if something has a deleterious effect on brain function, that's going to affect uh, the ability to find mates and to reproduce. And those things will be, will not stay in the population that long, certainly not for thousands of years. So what that means is that things that are high frequency that we do in genetic association studies, common genetic variation, that, that is things that we see in the population at more than 1% in the general population, things that you and I all share, these high frequency, that means more than 1%, some are 10, 20, 30%, have very low effect sizes with regard to human phenotypes in general. And a phenotype is anything we can measure. It could be height, weight, um, blood pressure, and cognitive and behavioral abilities, social function, et cetera. So what, we, so what we see is that natural selection has weeded those out so that the things that we share are generally not that deleterious. But you know, it turns out that actually, as we've done more and more sequencing, there are a lot of rare variants as well even some that are almost individual specific. Um, what I'm gonna be talking about today is mostly the common variation in terms of 
how it how it loads on the things because that's what we've been able to measure. But I will hit a few rare rare variants as well and discuss that. So how about neuropsychiatric disorders? Well, again, I showed you they're very heritable. And the way we think about them is that you can think about the liability to any kind of quantitative trait like social cognition. There's like a threshold. And this is just showing a genotype. Like you get one from mom, one from dad. You can be, you know, this is just a cartoon. You can have both A's, an A and a B or a BB if there are two variants of this particular gene at that locus. Um, and past a certain threshold, you're likely to have, a, you know, you're more and more likely as your genes load up. So think about things as a liability threshold model. And again, that's how I viewed autism and shown it from the beginning. This is a paper from 2008, where basically at that point, language was part of the definition of autism. And it just shows a normal distribution. And if you run into the red, you're likely to have autism. So autism depends on quantitative impairment in multiple domains. And so if if you're in this part of the impairment and this part of the, it, uh, which could be due to uh, small additive effects of common genetic variation, a large rare mutation, or even environmental factors, all of those things can roll you over into that area. And so it's really critical to now know, and this is brilliant work led by Angelica Ronald and her mentor, Robert Cloman and Elise Robinson was a graduate student with Angelica, evidence that autistic traits show the same etiology in the general population at the quantitative extremes. So what that means is that these same things that are pushing you over and making you have autism are the same things that are driving social cognition in the general population. So uh, many people without autism might be here in social behavior but not have autism, for example. And again, this is just showing this in another paper in Nature Genetics, that if you look at the genetic correlation between in a non-autistic general population using this measure, um, I think this was in ALSPAC, which is a, a, a large population study in England, where they have a measure of social cognition called the SCDC. And if you apply the polygenic score, you can see that the genetic correlation in the general population with those that are scoring, you know, related to the score on social cognition relates to the polygenic risk score for autism. And much less so for you know, schizophrenia and other things non-related. So the same factors that are driving autism genetic risk drive social cognition. Again, this notion that it's all a liability threshold, it's all part of a continuum. So how about if you have a big rare mutation, what happens? Well, this is a deletion that was looked at in the population. Now, previously, people had studied this and found it associated with intellectual disability, schizophrenia, epilepsy, language delay, in disease cohorts, in hospitals, in clinics. But when DECODE looked in the general population, what they found is that there were people walking around who, who didn't have a, a diagnosis of any sort, but who had very specific impairment in kind of language-related areas and reading. Uh, these are just the tests here. They were not, again, this notion that, that 
you know, that it, cognition is not one thing, it, 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 and, and nor is behavior. Um, it's there are many different cognitive functions, and so the people who have this mutation walking around have very specific strengths and weaknesses. Carriers in the population show very specific areas of impairment. It's it's called dyslexia, reading difficulty, and dyscalculia, which is some difficulty with math. And actually, they have structural brain correlates. And um, the same regions that are found to be involved in, in this particular deletion have been implicated in language function and dyscalculia in controls in in just you know without this so again there's even even with these rare mutations you can see the relationship of brain regions that are that are related to those functions in general population so then you have to ask yourself why should common variation persist if it's deleterious or not adaptive in some manner in other words we have common variation for schizophrenia, for autism, and I'm talking about autism specifically here. Why do variants, you know, genetic variation that appears to diminish social behavior remain common? I, I just showed you that polygenic risk score for autism is related to uh, social cognition in the general population. Hugely. Why? Like, why weren't they removed? Well, of course, what it's telling you is that they must be you know, especially because it's a lot of them, it's not a single variant, it's not an accident, in other words, they must be imparting strengths or things that were under positive selection to some degree. And we can see that here. This is just a paper showing genetic correlation between different conditions, even things like smoking, which are, you know, Alzheimer's disease, bipolar, and you can see autism right here. And you look at autism and it's not correlated with a lot of things, but then <laughs> it is with this one thing here, years of education. It's kind of correlated at about a 0.4 level, which is really, really remarkable. Further, if we look in another study, we can see the correlation of autism polygenic risk with IQ is like 0.28. It's one of the highest, highest things here. So it's really, really remarkable. This is all correlation with IQ. So again, IQ in elect, um, years of education, you know, more years of education associated with what we call quote unquote risk, genetic risk. So the genetic factors that increase autism susceptibility also increase, um, you know, what many would call, you know, strongly positive attributes um, as well. So, so one can begin to get an inkling that the more we're learning about autism genetic quote unquote risk is that it's it's not really a risk it's 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 part of normal human genetic variation and it is related you know and there there are at least several positive factors that have been measured uh, related to it and so this begins to get to savantism autism and exceptional abilities savantism which is you know ha having an amazing ta singular talent in a particular area um, is estimated that 50% of savants are on the autism spectrum. Um, you know, this has been studied, either mathematical, calculation, visual, spatial, savantism. I showed you the extraordinary art, uh, music, 
Synesthesia is also increased in autism, and that's work that's been done by Simon Baron Cohn. Synesthesia is when stimulation of one sensory modality automatically triggers a perception in a second modality in the absence of any direct stimulation. It's present in about 4% of the population. It's developmental. Sometimes it goes away. Many people don't even know they have it because that's just the way they've, they've seen the world. And so uh, Simon looked at this with his colleagues. 36% of synesthetes have at least one other family member with synesthesia. There's been a linkage study. There is some genetics there. And actually, here is just a, a um, anecdotal case. I don't know if, um, if you've heard of Daniel Tammet. Uh, he's written this extraordinary book, Born on a Blue Day, uh, which is amazing. And, and I, I urge you to read it. But he sees numbers of shapes and colors, um, um, speaks seven languages, at least maybe more now. Um, you know, he quote unquote has Asperger's syndrome. So if, if independent synesthesia and autism should occur in four in 10,000 people, right? This is, this is at the time that Simon did this work. And, um, but instead the rate of synesthesia in adults with autism was 19%, almost three times greater than in controls. So again, um, if, 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 if one looks at absolute pitch, um, which is another kind of, which is also associated with synesthesia um, and is a kind of form of musical uh, savantism. You know, one also sees this, this very strong association. So what does it mean that a feature that is present rarely in the general population is more frequent than those who we call having a disorder? Um, again, it gets back to the human condition. It's one of strengths and weaknesses and that, it's part of a continuum, and there's some trade-offs in the way that our brains work. And we, in a way, I mean, not intentionally, but but some strengths are sacrificed for other weaknesses. Great strength can be the flip side of disability, in part because of the genetic contributions to human brain evolution. And I'm going to show you this again, um, but but now add add a little bit onto this. The most variable brain regions in the in, in humans are also those that have expanded the most on the human lineage. And so when you look at evolutionary cortical surface expansion here and, and put that map on intersubject variability from this paper, you see that they're largely overlapping. And this is just shown in this graph from that paper. So again, this just nails home the point that, you know, perhaps one side of human evolution and, and our extraordinary facilities compared to other animals on our planet is a vulnerability that comes with that. And, but this variability, you know, there's vulnerability and there's variability. And I'm going to end by just talking about what this really means as we study and begin to try to understand autism. We know how variable autism is. And we know how this, you know, uh, Sarah Spence once told me, you know, you've seen one child and, and maybe she was repeating Isabel Rappin's uh, statement, which was, you know, you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. But in, in, in neurology and in medicine, we have hundreds of years of learning from the individual. This is a patient called Tam that was Broca's first patient with aphasia. From this patient and one other, two patients, Broca surmised that language sat in the left hemisphere 
And in the left frontal lobe, of course, work from Wernicke and others that followed that showed that there was a more distributed system, but the left hemispheric language still stood. This is patient HM who has taught uh, 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 generations of neuroscientists about memory and that it had an unfortunate bilateral hippocampal removal for intractable epilepsy and um, severe profound memory impairment. And again, how we can learn from individuals, this is even more important in something like autism, which is now autism spectrum disorder, which is just such a broad range of different conditions that have been brought together. And so what I'd like to leave you with is that human cognition and behavior is on a continuum. So is what we label a disease or a disorder or a dysfunction. In some cases, aspects of neuropsychiatric disorders may be the result of natural selection on positive traits. And there's a strong rationale to understand the nature of individual differences because it's there that will really begin to understand, um, move to a kind of, you know, we talk about precision medicine and personalized medicine. That's what we really need to do. And we have the genetic and molecular tools to begin to connect genes to cellular function, to behavior in individuals. And so I thank you for your attention. Um, I, I'm calling out my funding, uh, uh, you know, from previous work, but also the Paul Allen Frontiers Group that did fund me, but where ANCARTA at, at, at UCSD, which originally challenged me to begin to think about this problem when Simon Baron Cohen and I were, were uh, organizing a meeting for that. So anyway, uh, thank you for your attention. I'm happy to take questions if there's time. Hi, ex excellent presentation. I have one question on the polygenic uh, nature of uh, autism. And uh, could you comment on the epigenetic aspects and uh, about uh, how autism can be inherited even from normal parents or vice versa, that autistic children can have uh, later offsprings that are totally normal? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So polygenicity means that there's a whole bunch of common genetic variation. That means shared by more than 4 1% uh, of the population that is co-transmitted from both parents to the child. So, of course, the parents can be unaffected and transmit that. We've recently expanded that in a paper this year to show that it can also be the case with rare inherited variation, because you would ask, if you have a rare deleterious mutation, how can that not cause autism in the parents? Well, one of the ways is we showed that that's co-transmitted with the polygenic risk. And then if the autistic individual marries an, even another autistic individual, it's possible that they'll transmit what they transmit to their offspring is not sufficient risk to be autistic because it takes the combined additive effects likely of hundreds of different, if not thousands, but certainly hundreds of different genetic variants to cause this. Um, in, in, in the polygenic model. And even if it's rare genetic variation, that can even come along with polygenic risk as well. So, so we've been able to kind of begin to explain, we think, how rare inherited variation can 
actually mix with common genetic variation so that a parent who's passing a rare variant isn't autistic, but the child is, and how a child can then marry somebody who's autistic, or if they marry somebody who's not autistic, it, it's just really a kind of shaking, you know, literally um, randomization that occurs during, um, you know, as, as you pass your genome on and uh, what's called recombination that decides what goes to each child. So each child only shares 50% of the genetic variation of the, you know, of the parent. So it depends which 50% they get. So that's exactly how that could be explained. It fits really well with this notion of additive polygenic effects. And now knowing that we have, we can create kind of a risk score, of, you know, both polygenic and, and with rare variation, that, that polygenic risk score is what's used to look at the genetic correlation with IQ, educational attainment, all kinds of other things. And that's what I was showing there you know, this very strong correlation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.